Jay Sigurd here, Starting Point Podcast. We're talking science, faith, and a whole lot more. Buckle up, because it's go time. Jay Sigurd here. Thanks for joining me on today's broadcast. We are headed into part 11 of Creation in six days. I think it's taking me longer to go through this series than it took God to create the world and the universe. So, But before we delve into the episode, make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you can be alerted when the new ones come out each Friday. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave a five-star review. That helps. Plus, tell your friends. The more people we reach, uh, the better it is. Uh, hopefully, you think it's worthwhile information, so tell as many friends as you can. We always, always appreciate that. So what can you expect in today's episode? We're going to be continuing to examine the scientific evidence regarding the age of the earth and creation in six days. We finally got around to starting that last episode, and we're going to continue today. Very, very short review. I just don't want to spend too much time doing that because we have a lot of other things to cover. Um, We talked about the fact that there are no clocks in nature. None, no clocks, even though people say, wait a minute, we got radiometric dating and carbon-14 and we got you know, oil formation and just ice cores and whatever it might be. I mentioned there are no clocks in nature. We just have a lot of processes with, again, sediments being washed into oceans, the growth of stalactites and stalagmites. They got the moon moving further away from us. You have the decay of the Earth's magnetic field and a bunch of other stuff, which we'll be covering quite a bit of that in the rest of this series. So there aren't any clocks sitting there that you can look at and say, oh, see, this is how old this is because we're looking at this clock. We just have processes, and by making assumptions about those processes, we can turn them into clocks. And the point I made was if the assumptions you're making about these processes are incorrect, then the results, the ages you're getting as a yield from these processes will also be incorrect, again, sometimes way, way off. And then we finally got started talking about radiometric dating itself. I mentioned that this is a biggie. This is is the go-to. You want to talk about the Earth being billions of years old? Radiometric dating is your friend, right? Because it just proves millions and billions of years. Well, you got to hang in there because we are going to be talking about how it works, taking a look at assumptions that are being made behind the method, which many people who have heard of radiometric dating, they're not even aware that there are assumptions behind the method. And as we go through this, I think you'll have a better understanding of why radiometric dating can be incorrect. I think you'll make that conclusion yourself. Again, I'm not here to twist your arm to force you into believing what I believe. I just mentioned last time, I'm just putting a pebble in your shoe, something that you have to deal with, something you got to think about, and then you can make up your own mind as to which direction you're going to head after you learn some of these things. The other thing I'm doing is providing some information that most people have never heard. If you grow up in the public school system, state universities, much of what I'm going to share you will have never heard, which is unfortunate because we're in the sub-series here where we're talking about scientific evidence. I'm not going to share some technical scientific detail and then tell you, well, we know that must be wrong. 
because Proverbs chapter 3, whatever verse says this or that, um, we've looked at Scripture, and we looked at it in a fair amount of detail, and I I believe Scripture. I believe it's true, cover to cover, and I, I gave you my thoughts on that, and we looked at what the actual text teaches. In this particular sub-series, we are sticking with the science. What does the science rationally indicate? We're going to be looking through that and working through these things and especially taking a look at the assumptions that many people aren't even aware that they exist and that they're required in order to do radiometric dating or dating in general. So I want to start out with an analogy because I mentioned before that my audience consists of a wide, wide range of backgrounds, not just a podcast audience, but when I'm traveling around speaking. In fact, I'm heading out to the U.S. Naval Academy tomorrow morning. I'm heading out that area speaking at a church first, and then I think on Tuesday night I'm at the Naval Academy. Those are smart people, and so I'm able to go a little deeper there uh, because they're kind of schooled in a lot of these things. Um, it's, it's pretty cool, but sometimes I'm on a Sunday morning, and I've got you know younger kids through 80, 90-year-olds and everywhere in between, and some of them absolutely love scientists. Sometimes they're PhD scientists. Sometimes they hate science and can't stand it. So when I cover certain topics, I have to make sure I can reach as many people as possible, even though some people will say, you didn't cover all the details, which, which is true. I can't possibly do that every time I speak. And other people say, you know what, I, I just didn't grasp that, which that might happen. Even though I try to keep it simple, there still might be some people that still didn't get it. Sometimes I'm a little surprised because I, I'd like to think that I explain things fairly straightforward. Whether you agree with them or not, that's another topic. But I tried to make them at least discernible and you understand what point I'm making. So sometimes I'll go out of my way to make something as simple as humanly possible, but I'll still have some people say, you know, well, you just, that was really interesting, but you just lost me on that. I'm thinking, at what point did I lose you? Because I, I was being pretty simple and I didn't even go into the technical details at all. But I'm going to start out with an analogy right now, which is one that I often share when I have a general audience and I tell them that we're going to look at radiometric dating. And sometimes I, I physically see them respond, either roll their eyes or shake their heads. It's like, oh, no, this is too technical. I'm not going to grasp it. I don't even care or whatever. So I'd like to share something that they can all relate to. And so here's my analogy. I ask the audience, and I'm asking you right now, to picture your kitchen sink. Seriously, picture your kitchen sink. So for the moment, forget about all anything technical we've covered so far. Just think about your kitchen sink. And I want you to picture a glass sitting in the sink. And you're going to try to figure out how long, how long has that glass been sitting there in your sink? Kind of the age of the glass to a certain extent. So you eye up the situation and you make a few observations about the situation of the glass in the sink. First, you notice the size of the glass. Then you notice the glass is basically about half full of water. Thirdly, you notice the faucet is dripping, maybe roughly like one drop per second. Those are observations you make about the situation. And given that, you need to figure out how long has that glass been sitting there. Let's say you estimate it would take, I don't know, maybe like an hour to fill it up halfway. That's, that's your guess. So you think 
I think the glass has been sitting there for an hour. Now, that seems pretty straightforward, right? Well, <laughs> not quite, and let me explain. Remember how I mentioned that there are no clocks in nature? None, only processes? Well, uh, and then by making assumptions about these processes that we observe, we can turn these processes in nature into clocks. Well, you, just now in this analogy, you took a real process. The, the water dripping, it's actually happening. It is a process. You saw it yourself. You observed it for a while. You took a real life process. And then you made three major assumptions about the situation in order to come up with your estimate, but you didn't even realize. It just kind of happened behind the scenes. And you're going to be a little surprised and you might even smile a little bit like, yeah, I, I guess I did make that assumption. First assumption is that you assumed the glass was empty to begin with. So whoever put the glass in the sink, you know, when you weren't there, it was empty to begin with. You don't know that. Why did you assume it was empty? You just kind of did by default, but it might not have been empty. What if someone was in the kitchen and the glass was full, they drank half of it, and then they set it in the sink. So now it's half full sitting in the sink. They walk out. You walk in literally two seconds later, and you say, oh, that glass has been sitting there an hour. No, it's been there two seconds. It was half full to begin with. You made an assumption that turns out to be, let's say, false. Well, then your conclusion, your estimate, will also be wrong. That was one assumption. A second assumption you probably made was that no other sources of water entered the glass. Well, let's say someone put the glass in the sink and it was empty. But they or someone else walked by and they had a bottle of water and they just dumped a bunch of water in that glass and filled it up halfway they walk out, you walk in two seconds later, and you say, it's been there an hour. No, it's been there two seconds, but someone added a bunch of water from another source, not just a dripping. There was an additional source. You assumed there weren't any additional sources. In fact, you made another assumption that's kind of related to that. Not only was were there no additional sources of water, none of the water that did go in there leaked out. There's no leak at the bottom of the glass. So those are just assumptions. But if your assumptions are wrong, your estimates are going to be wrong. Another assumption, you assumed the water was always dripping at one drop per second. Now, that's an assumption. Well, what if, now again, that's the real process, the water dripping. That's the one thing that you could consider an actual process that you observed. That's called observational science. You can see that happening. You could bring friends in. They could all observe it. They all agree. Yes, the water is dripping and it looks like it's one drop per second. That is a very accurate observation. But you assumed the whole time the glass was in that sink, the water was dripping at one drop per second. But you don't know that because you weren't around to make that observation. It's just an assumption. Well, what if someone put the glass in the sink and it was empty? You were correct about that. And let's say you were correct, no other sources of water entered that bottle. You were correct about that assumption. But what if they put the glass in the sink and they turn the faucet on full blast and they fill it up halfway and they slam the faucet shut and then it's just dripping after that. They walk out. You walk in two seconds later 
You see the glass there and you say, it's been there an hour. No, it's been there two seconds. But that dripping water, that water was going a lot faster before you walked in. Full blast, filled it up halfway, slammed it shut, and then it started dripping after that. So three major assumptions that you made without even really realizing it. And again, if any one or all of those assumptions are false, your conclusion is going to be false. And again, sometimes it can be just way, way off. So with that analogy that you probably completely followed, it makes perfect sense. You see how you take an actual process, you make assumptions about it in order to come up with a a time estimate. Now let's look at an actual radiometric method. And there are a number of them. We don't need to cover all of them, but we're going to start out looking at uh, uranium-238 decaying to lead-206. So it's one of the uranium-lead methods. Uranium-238 is radioactive. It's unstable. It doesn't want to stay uranium-238. It decays over time. And it goes through a decay chain, and it ends up being lead-206, which is stable and doesn't change anymore. So uranium-238 decays into lead-206. Again, there are other methods. We could talk about potassium argon, rubidium strontium, and, and so on. But it's going to be sufficient just to kind of take a look at this one because other methods will have similar assumptions and all that. So uranium decays into lead. We'll, we'll kind of keep it generic. I don't want to keep saying 238 and 206. It's, sometimes it just clouds things and you can't focus on the other numbers I might share that are more important. Well, this uranium has a half-life, specifically uranium-238, has a half-life of about four and a half billion years. Now, some people would say, right there, well, right there, it proves that you know Earth is billions of years old. No, you probably don't understand what a half-life is. The half-life is how long does it take something to decay to half of what it used to be? So just crude analogy, if you had one pound of uranium-238, it would take four and a half billion years to decay to half a pound. How long does it take? take to decay halfway. So it's got half of its volume left. That's the half-life. Well, when we take a look at this uranium in the laboratory, we measure its decay. That's good observational science. That's like watching the water drip. We can see it. You can have multiple scientists measure this. Some of the scientists can be atheists. Some can be Christians. Some can be Hindus. Some can be males. Some can be females. Some can be whatever. (laughs) You can have all these different scientists doing the same tests, and they will all say, yeah, it's decaying really slow, and at the rate we're seeing now, yeah, it would take probably four and a half billion years for it to decay to half of what it is right now. That's its half-life. That's a good measurement. It doesn't say that what we're looking at is four and a half billion years old. It's just saying that's how slow it's decaying. If we were to stand here for four and a half billion years, at the end of that time period, half of it would be gone. So they're measuring its current decay rate. That's a half-life. So let's take a look at this decay method, uranium-lead radiometric dating method, and let's look at the assumptions behind it because... They're very similar to the assumptions we made with the glass in your sink. So again, let's harken back to this thinking about this glass sitting in your sink and the assumptions you made about the glass in the sink. 
that you had estimated it sitting there an hour, but no, it was only there two seconds. So with that in mind, let's look at this actual dating method. When you put the glass in the sink, you assumed it was empty to begin with, no water. So the water that we see there um, came from the dripping because when the glass was initially put in there, you assumed it was empty. Now, you might have been wrong about that, but that was an assumption. Well, that a similar assumption is made with the uranium-lead dating method. Now, uranium, I mentioned, decays into lead. So when they pick up a rock they want to date, they will measure the lead that's in there to try to estimate how long this thing has been here. In fact, let me just back up a second and talk about that in general. So you pick up a rock, say an igneous rock. You can't really date sedimentary rocks because they're fragments of other things. So it's primarily igneous rocks or perhaps metamorphic rocks. But let's just say igneous rock and it's got uranium and lead in it. So you pick up the rock and you measure the amount of lead that's in there. And then you try to figure out how long would it take for that lead to accumulate. If uranium is decaying into lead slowly, how long would it take to make this amount of lead that we're measuring? Measuring the lead in the rock is a good observation. The lead is there and you're measuring how much is there. And then you're trying to guess how long would it take for that much lead to accumulate? If the uranium is decaying really, really slow, how long would it take to come up with this particular amount of lead that we're measuring? And they say, well, they do their calculations. If, if, it, takes, if it would take four and a half billion years for uranium to decay to half of what it was, then how long would it take to get this much lead that, that we just measured? And they might say, wow, well, that would take one billion years with a B, one billion years. That's how long it should take to accumulate this much lead with it decaying that slowly. And so the rock becomes one billion years old. There's kind of a simplification of how the method works, but that's the gist of it. So with that in mind, let's look at these assumptions again. They make the assumption that the glass in your sink was empty. It didn't have any of that water to begin with. The water you do see came from the slow dripping. Well, when they are looking at a rock to date, the lead they're looking at, they assume it wasn't there when the rock initially formed. The rock was empty in a sense, empty of lead, so the lead we see today, which is a good observation, that came slowly from the uranium. There was nothing there to begin with. Anything we see came slowly from the uranium. Well, that's an assumption. We actually see rocks that form today, which we'll get to in a bit, that have lead in them right away. There's lead right away. Or these other what we call daughter elements. There's parent and daughter. The parent decays into the daughter. Uranium parent decays into the daughter lead. So when the rock formed, it was just all parent stuff in a sense, all uranium. None of that lead was there. The lead came from the uranium slowly over time. So they assumed the glass was empty. Well, we have good reason to believe the rocks weren't empty to begin with, but they need to assume it was to come up with the old ages. If you assume right from the get-go there was some lead there and then it got added to over time, you lose the old dates you need. So they just assume that it was empty to begin with. Uh, they call it initial daughter containment. That's a technical phrase. So that was one assumption, the, the glass being empty in the sink. Second assumption, you assumed with your glass that no other sources of water entered that glass, just the dripping from the faucet. Well, with this rock they're dating, 
They are assuming for the entire history of the rock, if they're saying it's a billion years old, they are saying for one billion years, no other lead from an outside source got washed into the rock. And no lead that decayed from the uranium within the rock, none of that that accumulated was ever washed out. So no other lead leaked into it from a different source, and any lead that was produced in it, none of that leaked out. Well, that's not a valid assumption to say for one billion years, this rock was in this protected environment. They called a closed system that nothing affected it. So no other extra lead came in. None of the lead that was in there went out. Well, groundwater going through the ground can bring minerals in and out of rocks. So to think for one billion years of earth history, that none of these other elements came in and out that would have affected anything, it's not a good assumption, and that would throw your data off. But they need to assume it was in this closed system, protected from any other you know, lead coming in or, or going out, or they won't get the dates they want. Third assumption, back to your kitchen sink. You're seeing the actual process of the water dripping. Great observation. Well, they can measure uranium decaying into lead. We Again, we can do it over and over and over. And it seems from all the measurements, it's really consistent, very constant today. The key is today, as we're measuring it now, and even 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, it seems to be the same, it seems to be constant. As long as we've been measuring, it does seem to, to be pretty constant. Well, they assume that the decay rate for the entire history of the rock has been constant. It has never changed. This is one of those assumptions that on the surface seems to make more sense. Like, well, that seems pretty reasonable because we don't see it changing at all now. And we're not really even sure what could change it. We, we have some ideas, but it's not a terrible assumption initially to think that, you know, maybe it has been constant and we'll, we'll go with that one. Well, we actually have really good reason to believe that these decay rates have not been constant. And this is where I have to be careful because it gets into some technical details, but I'll try to explain it somewhat simply. And it's not really, again, it's not my intent to give you a master's degree or PhD in any of this. I want you to understand how these methods work in general, the assumptions behind them, and why they could easily be off if the assumptions are wrong. That's the main point. So what I'm doing now is digging a little deeper behind one of these assumptions to show you why we have really good scientific reason to believe that the decay rates have not always been what we are observing today. No question what they are today. Great science there. But to assume they've always been constant, we now have good reasons to think that's not a good assumption anymore. And it has to do with helium leaks and zircon crystals. So don't, don't walk away. Keep listening. I won't be focusing on this too long. But I want to explain some of it because many of you listening are like, yes, give me the details. Give me as much as you can. So when this uranium-238 specifically, decays into lead-206. It's not just sitting there as uranium and all of a sudden, pop, it turns into lead. It goes through what we call a decay change. It keeps changing. Isotopes and things goes through these different elements like 16 times, and the last one is lead-206. And that's stable. 
That one doesn't change anymore. It's not radioactive. It's done. So uranium turns into lead going through these steps, about 16 steps. Well, eight of these steps along the way produce helium nuclei. So the nucleus of a helium atom, it produces that and they capture an extra electron and then they become full-blown helium atoms. But basically, keeping it simple, as uranium decays into lead, it produces helium. Eight different times, it's producing helium. Now, this uranium is in the zircon crystals within the rock. So the zircon crystals contain uranium that are decaying into lead in the crystals. And as they're decaying, it's producing helium. Well, helium is pretty slippery, meaning it doesn't really interact with other elements. So it's in these tiny zircon crystals within the rock that you're dating. It gets produced, and as it gets produced, it just starts to leak out. It, it gravitates out of the crystals into the rock, and then it even goes through the rock into the atmosphere. And it's really lightweight. So it can't get going fast enough to get out of our atmosphere to, you know, overcome the gravitational pull. So helium decays into lead. It's producing, or sorry, uranium decays into lead. It's producing helium. It leaks out of the crystals and all the rock, and it just hangs out in the atmosphere. Okay. What's interesting is if you're looking at a rock then, and you're looking at these zircon crystals, you're not really expecting to find much helium. Why? Yes, it's been produced, but it's been sitting there for one billion years. That's plenty of time for the helium to leak out and be gone. You should expect to see very little helium. Maybe the stuff that was just produced now, everything else, long gone. It's had millions and millions and a billion years to have leaked out and be gone. But when they actually measure the amounts of helium that are still in the zircon crystals, it's way too high it's still in the crystal. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us scientists are studying this in great detail. It tells them, yeah, the uranium decayed into lead. We, we can tell that. Um, but it must have happened so quickly that there wasn't enough time for the helium to leak out. And they've done a lot of detailed study. And I, I wish I could show you the, the graphics for these things. It gets a little technical, but it is, it's visually fascinating to show how the research they did. They, big picture. Two different sets of scientists. Some are going with the fact that the Earth is 4.6 you know, billion years old in their mind. They, they believe the Earth is 4.6 billion years old. Another set of scientists say, you know, we, we think there's great reason to believe it's not that old. could be thousands of years old. Uh, some of them get that from the scripture, scripture narrative. Some of that also have looked at science, and they, they have scientific reasons, too, and many have both. So two sets of scientists, some are just going with the default billions of years, and the others are like, you know, we, we think the evidence actually leans heavily the other direction. So when they were going to do further research on this helium leaking out of the zircon crystals, they had expectations of what they should find as they're digging up crystals from different depths of the earth that are different temperatures. They're expecting different leak rates because of the temperatures and all this. Again, it gets kind of technical, but they had expectations. One expectation shows up on the graph one place and the other expectation from the scientists who don't buy into the millions and billions of years would show up at a very different place on the graph. They're, they're a factor of 100,000 apart from each other. So 
they have hugely, vastly different expectations of what they're expecting to find when they do the research on these crystals at different uh, layers in the earth. Well, they went ahead, they dug up the crystals from different layers, different depths, different temperatures, and they expected different, what we call diffusion rates, how, how quickly the helium is leaking out of these crystals. Those who believe 4.6 billion years old, plotted, you know, you can plot a graph on what you would expect to see if the earth really is that old. Then there was another line in the graph, what we would expect to see if the earth is thousands of years old. Then they plotted the actual data coming from the crystals. And you plot them on the graph and they line up virtually perfectly with what was expected if the earth is thousands of years old. Way, way off of what you would expect if it's actually 4.6 billion years old. In fact, it was such a close fit, it looked like it was rigged. Because normally when you're doing, you're doing your data, you're, you're guessing different things here and there, and you can be a little bit off. This was so good, it was almost like they're going to think we're cheating. But they didn't cheat at all. This is the actual data, and it fit what they previously expected. They, they were making a prediction. This is what we predict to find, and it lined up perfectly with what they expected, showing that, yes, the uranium decayed into lead. Helium was produced, but it must have happened so quickly there hasn't been enough time for it to leak out. It matches up with accelerated decay rates in the past. And skip some of the details for now. There's evidence that some of the decay rates could have been sped up to 1 billion, with a B, 1 billion times faster than what we are observing today. So there's really good scientific reason to believe that the decay rates we are observing today, which they certainly seem constant right now, they were faster in the past um, so I don't get overly technical. I'm going to have to keep moving here. But we talked about the three major assumptions of the glass in the sink. I showed you how they relate to actual dating method, uranium lead. Again, we could have talked about potassium argon, rubidium strontium, and other ones. But they all have similar assumptions behind them. And you can see if your assumptions are wrong, the results you're getting can be off. And then seriously, way, way off. So uh, we will look at a couple examples, but keep in mind uh, that we're told that multiple methods confirm the same ages. Is that true? No, it's really not. They give you the impression we've got, yes, we have multiple ways of measuring things and they, they all confirm like the same date and so that's proof. That's not accurate at all. And I think I'm going to, with the time we have left, squeeze in one or two quick examples of just, this is just an example of where the radiometric dating was way, way off. And this is really clear cut. You're going to see like, wow, that was really off. And it just kind of makes you open your eyes to these things that we thought were just set in stone. I mean, right? It was just black and white. It's science and you cannot argue with it. So I'm going to give you two quick examples here and we'll pick it up the next time. But we're going to talk about Mount St. Helens. Now, Mount St. Helens, a volcano erupted in 1980. It's absolutely fascinating. And I'm going to be discussing the details of the eruption later in the podcast series because it is unbelievably fascinating. I actually co-led a tour there two summers ago with Dr. Steve Austin and other scientists. 
And I can't wait to share details about that eruption that relates to the whole age of the earth thing, but it's going to have to wait a bit for now. What I do want to focus on is this. I want to focus on radiometric dating as it relates to Mount St. Helens. So I told you that it erupted in 1980. Some of you are old enough to remember details of its eruption out in Washington State. And a lava dome was formed. So magma lava is coming out of the earth and it hardens into brand new baby rocks. These are brand new rocks. They did not exist before. They got a clock reset in a sense because the gases are heated up and, and gone. And scientists know when the lava cools, this is a new rock. We, we saw the rock form. So you have a lava dome being formed in 1980. The rocks that are formed from that lava hardening uh, are baby rocks born in 1980. Now, radiometric dating was conducted in 1990. That's 10 years later. How old were the rocks? They were 10 years old. We saw them form from Mount St. Helens. The scientists saw them form. We know, we know the age. It's kind of rare, but those we actually saw being born. So we know their age. They're 10 years old. Well, they use potassium argon dating. Potassium is a, a metal, argon's a gas. Potassium is radiometric uh, and radioactive. It's unstable. It decays into argon. So they use potassium argon dating on these rocks that were 10 years old, 1990, 10-year-old rocks. The ages they yielded ranged from 350,000 years to 900,000 years to 1.7 million years and even 2.8 million years old. Which of those dates is correct? They're all radiometric dating dates from potassium argon. Well, none of them are correct. The rocks are 10 years old. We know that. Wow, can radiometric dating be that off? Yeah. Well, obviously the assumptions behind the methods were off. They assumed the rocks were empty and they were in a closed system and all that kind of stuff. That allows you to take a 10-year-old rock and come up with hundreds of thousands and millions of years. Well, if rocks of known ages, if the dates for those are way, way, way off, how come when they're dating rocks that they don't know the age of, they assume, well, those are, those are right? Keep this in mind, too. The concept of precision versus accuracy. Two different things. If I told you I weighed 100 in 92.5113786 pounds. That is unbelievably precise. Uh, it's not accurate, but that's a precise number, isn't it? Yeah, we get impressed by precision. And sometimes when they're producing these dates, they seem really precise and we're kind of intimidated by it. It's like, wow, these guys are so smart, you know, coming up with those dates. Doesn't mean they're accurate. So I don't actually know how much I weigh. I think it's about 190. Um, but the point is, there's a difference between being very precise about a number and actually being accurate. And we're, we're more concerned with the accuracy here. Uh, one last example uh, from New Zealand, Mount Ingaraho. They had lava flows from 1945 to 1975. That makes these lava flows 50 to 80 years old. We saw them form. Uh, I didn't, don't think I saw them. <laughs> uh, not that I wasn't alive for some of that, but, but scientists saw that. They documented it. So these lava flows are 50 to 80 years old. They used potassium argon, and they also used an isochron method on it. It's one of the other methods. And they were dated from 2.5 million years old to 3.9 billion, with a B, 
billion years old. But they were 50 to 80 years old. But radiometric dating proves they were two and a half million to almost four billion years old. Something wrong is going on here. Yeah, we've already covered it. These assumptions are not valid assumptions. And you get different dates and you tend to pick and choose the ones that you want. And when we resume, I will come up with an example of when they were doing the picking and choosing. And it's not very impressive and it kind of makes you a little frustrated because it's supposed to be great science, right? Black and white, you can't argue with it, but you actually can. And it's not very legitimate. So again, we're just getting warmed up. There's so much that I want to cover. Cool stuff, exciting. I want to be very straightforward with it. Just putting information out there. You can draw your own conclusions. Um, But thanks for joining us. And I can't wait to resume next time. We'll see you then. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Starting Point Podcast. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, tell a friend, and please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That's the number one way to help us reach more and more people with these important and inspiring messages. To learn more about myself, Jay Siegert, and The Starting Point Project, please visit us at thestartingpointproject.com. We'll catch you next time.